are listening to the Sunday Sermon from Crossroads Bible Church in Bellevue, Washington. To learn more about Crossroads, visit us on our website at cbcbellevue.com. I, I don't know if any of you guys are big coffee drinkers, uh, <clears throat> but there's coffee out in the lobby if you are. Hopefully you got your fix when you came in here. Um, I, I'm a pretty big coffee drinker, but I didn't used to be. Like growing up, my dad was a big craft coffee snob and uh, he only had like the finest coffee. Um, it was like some brand called like Folgers and it was, uh, it was like in this like big tote of like pure gold or something. And he would, he'd make it every morning, this Folgers brand and I just couldn't stand the stuff. Um, and then I, I went off to college and I still didn't drink it in college. And a lot of my friends would like do all nighter study things. And I'm like, dude, you just need like code red Mountain Dew. That's all you need. You don't need coffee. And then uh, <clears throat> when I became a teacher, I started to like coffee a little bit. Um, but then when I was a pastor, uh, I, I started drinking a lot more of it because like lots of pastors are really into coffee and they're kind of, you know, like, like there's some pastors of this church, man, they are coffee snobs. And so, and I became one, I became like them so that I might win some. And, uh, I, became, I, 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 so I started really liking coffee then. And then once I had kids, I've got a three and a one-year-old at home. So now it's basically just an IV drip of coffee, uh, every single day. And so, uh, but what I've noticed is coffee culture is a really unique thing because um, there's a lot of like people that gatekeep coffee. You know what gatekeeping is? It's like when you are trying to uh, keep people out of a certain hobby or a certain thing and you got to say, well, you got to do this and this and this and this before you can enter the gate uh, to enjoy this hobby. And so there's lots of coffee snobs out there, people who are like, <clears throat> well, unless you drink like single origin, Kenya roasted, natural washed, Peruvian blended you're not one of me, you know, there's pour overs and everything else. And that's, that's great. I, and I actually, I'm kind of, I, I wouldn't tell you you're, you're wrong, but I, I enjoy a good cup of coffee. So I get it. I get the, the, the drinking, the origin beans and those kind of things. But what I've also noticed is that people can get really like intense about what even is coffee. Like there's, there, there's a whole set of people on the internet, which is the greatest place. Uh, there's a whole set of people just dedicated on to proving like that, that coffee is only coffee if you drink it black. You can't drink it with anything else. Like people posting things like this all the time. Like I think men who order their coffee with cream are sissies. It's mean, man. <laughs> like if you, you know, like unless you, unless you drink it black, it's not real coffee. Like this person's so excited to unpack their coffee maker. And of course you don't have any creamer. And someone below is like, if you add anything to your coffee, you don't love coffee rude, you know? This guy's like, you know, if your coffee orders more than four words, you're part of the problem. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's, that's messed up, right? Like, th this one I, I love because this is like a meme that circulates around of like two, two guys just arguing all the time, and they're usually arguing about something completely stupid, and this is the, the same uh, thing. So this guy says, I put two creamers in my coffee. And the other guy's like, real men drink their coffee black. And then he turns back and says, real men do whatever they want. And the other guy says, real men conform to traditional concepts of manliness. And I've just pictured this argument happening, you know, and he says, I, I, I like flavor and life's too short to let my masculinity depend on a cup of coffee. And then he throws a chair and storms out. Um, now, th this encounter probably has never actually taken place, like in real life. But, but people tend to gatekeep on different hobbies. And when people do gatekeep and they say, well, unless you uh, do X, Y, and Z to be part of the hobby, what happens is that it shuts people down. 
People might be excited to talk about something. Like, oh, look, look at this cup of coffee. I really like coffee. Well, you don't like coffee if you put cream in it. Well, that conversation's done, right? Like, they, they don't want to be any part of it anymore. You know, in my life, I, 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 my, one of my biggest hobbies is I play a lot of board games. Love, love playing board games. And it's hard sometimes because I got to explain to people, like, when I say I'm playing board games, because a lot of people don't play hobby board games. They're only familiar with, like, the board games you see, like, in Walmart or Target, which is fine. But then a lot of people assume I just, like, sit around with a bunch of grown men and play Candyland all day. Like, we're just like, oh, the Gumdrop River, you know? Or they figure I like paint like little like, you know, statues and I'm like, oh, here we go, go Pokemon Go, you know, like, and that's not, um, that's not the types of board games I play. Uh, but but the, uh, the, the thing I've seen in a lot of board game, like, like I'm part of a couple of board game groups like on Facebook, uh, or I'm part of, uh, I listen to a lot of board game podcasts and yes, those are a real thing. <laughs> People adults that sit around and they talk about games. And listen, don't judge me. We all coped with the pandemic differently, okay? Like, <laughs> some of you guys chose to get in shape and better yourselves, and some of us just listen to board game podcasts. Um, and, and if you're like, well, board gaming is not a real hobby, unless, you are, unless you're a, you know, a real man's hobby is riding on a jet ski with a chainsaw in one hand and a golf club in the other while you're pulling your toe to fish behind you on your jet ski, you're, you're, you're being an example in my illustration right now about gatekeeping. So you should stop that. Besides, like, men just invented golf so they could have an excuse to take walks together anyway. So, um, like, look, so, so, so in this hobby, right, in this board game space, people love to make fun of Monopoly. And because it's, it's a game that's been around for a long time, and, and probably a lot of us have played Monopoly growing up, and some of us probably have really good experiences with it, and some of us have really bad experiences, where we play it for like 17 hours, and everyone hates each other at the end of it, and you're just rolling dice and moving a little doggy around the track, and you're like, I hate, and then so then they think board games are this. And so what, what happens is people come in the sphere of, of, of the space of board gaming and they actually like Monopoly. So they show up and they're like, hey, I'm so excited. I love Monopoly. And people get on there and they're so mean. They're just like, you're not a real board gamer. It's like, that's so messed up. They'll be like, I love Monopoly. That game is trash. And so these are the first words out of people's mouths either online or I've seen people do it in person too. And what happens is this form of gatekeeping, it turns people away. So you're not gonna have people that even participate in your hobby anymore. If you wanna make a hobby a space that's inclusive or something that people want to do, you're gonna tear apart the gates. Now, it's really annoying when people do it in hobbies and it's frustrating, but the stakes are pretty low. Right? For most people, they're like, oh, I just don't want to do board games anymore. So I'll go pick up a new hobby like riding jet skis with chainsaws, which you shouldn't do that. That's a dangerous hobby. Uh, I don't want to start a trend here. Um, but it's really, really significant when people gatekeep the gospel. And they put roadblocks in the way and saying, well, unless you do X, Y, and Z, you can't really be part of this community. You can't really be part of this church. You can't really understand who Jesus is unless you do this, 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 this. And so we see at a passage in scripture today, and we're gonna look at it together in Acts chapter 15, uh, that deals with this issue of gatekeeping. And so I'm gonna pray for us as we dive into God's word together this morning. Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for the promise that your word never returns void. And when it goes out, God, would we have hearts to hear? And would we have feet to move in whatever direction you're calling us to move in? Would we be convicted and challenged and encouraged uh, by your truth and your word this morning? 
Amen. Uh, last week, I, I talked about Acts chapter 14. Uh, if you were here last week, I started, it's kind of like a little mini series. We'll finish it next week uh, in, in this little section of Acts. Um, and, and in Acts chapter 14, we have this uh, story where Peter and Barnabas go around and they're mistaken for gods, Zeus and Hermes, and they say, hey, we're not the real Zeus and Hermes. Like, you have us mistaken for the wrong God. Let me tell you about the real God and who he is. And then there's Gentiles, which are people that were separate from the Jewish customs, separate from the Jewish morals and rituals, but they're finding Jesus and they're, they're knowing who Jesus is and they're placing their faith in Jesus. And so Paul and Barnabas are excited about that and they're sharing it. And they're like, you guys, this is so great. All these Gentiles are finding Jesus. And then what happens in verse one of chapter 15, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So they show up and they say, whoa, 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 hold on. <clears throat> yeah, I know like Jesus said, like, you know, you just gotta trust in him and all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved, all that good stuff. You know, like, this is fine. But uh, also we need you to have a surgery. And they're like, what? They're like, yeah, yeah, you gotta have this, all the males need to have this surgery on their anatomical part. And if they don't, then they can't really be Christians. They can't really follow Jesus. And Paul and Barnabas fight over this. And rightfully so. Look, the church gets accused all the time of fighting over like non-essential issues. And most of that criticism is true. A lot of times the church can squabble over really, really minor things that don't have any bearing on salvation and the truth of following Jesus. And it's somewhat embarrassing when the world calls us out as we like squabble about things and we can't get along, especially when Jesus prayed for unity in John chapter 17 and we tend to neglect that thing. Um, but certain things we have to get right. We have to argue about, and we have to draw a line in the sand. And the issue of salvation, how can you be saved? That is the issue of the Christian faith, right? Like what, uh, how do we get to God? Who is God? What do we need to do about it, right? Those are, those are big, big issues, and we have to get them right. And so Paul and Barnabas are like, whoa, okay, you, you are placing extra rules and requirements on finding Jesus, and that's not okay. And there's a huge argument that breaks out. And these guys are saying, no, no, it's not a big deal. They just got to get circumcised. And what that also means is, according to the custom of Moses, they're also saying you have to follow all the ritual, uh, all the laws, all the ceremonial laws uh, of Moses and the old covenant. You got to follow all of these, which is about 600 plus laws. And Paul and Barnabas are like, this is not Jesus. This is not what Jesus said. And so they end up going to the Jerusalem council. And so as they walk, you know, all over to the Jedi, I mean, Jerusalem council, they're sitting before Peter and James and John and Master Yoda and some others. And the, 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 sorry, I see Jerusalem council when I hear Jedi council. I'm a Star Wars nerd, okay? I, I won't make the joke again. I apologize. So they're, they're there in the Jerusalem council and they're sitting, they're sitting in there. And uh, the, while they're on their way, they're, they're proclaiming what God has done. Like, look at what God has done through uh, the Gentiles and they're finding him and they're pointing to God's truth. And verse four, when they came to Jerusalem, they're welcomed by the church and the apostles and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of Pharisees wrote up and said, 
arose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and in order that they may keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So again, these Pharisees get up and they went, hold on, hold on, hold on. We all had to be circumcised. You're telling me that they just get to not do that? No, 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 no. It's time that they have to be part of a church. Can you imagine if like that was actually like true and part of a church? Like you walk in to a church for the first time, like, hi, welcome to church. You're welcome just as you are. Hey, can I ask you a quick personal question? Uh, have you met Dr. Thomas? Why, why does Dr. Thomas have scissors? No worries, you're welcome just as you are. But also, would you mind chatting with, with Dr. Thomas for a second? Those scissors seem sharp. Yeah, yeah, just go talk to him. Um, it, all the men would be like, honey, you, you have fun. I'm gonna go in the car, right? Like they're gonna lose a ton of people and, and they're just putting these, these man-made laws in the way. Now God, yes, gave the custom of circumcision in the Old Testament, but then Jesus says, I've come to fulfill this, right? You're not bound to this, the, the ceremonial purification process anymore. This is not what saves you. And so they're saying, well, unless you do it, you can't be saved. And that's a, big, that's a big deal. And the apostles and the elders gathered together to consider this matter. And I, I, I also started to wonder, like, why are the Pharisees even here, right? Maybe some of you are wondering that. Like, wait a second, I thought the Pharisees were the guys who were always, like, against Jesus and, like, trying to trip him up and part of the, part of the mob that gets him executed. And you're right. But what you should understand is that the Jerusalem council takes place in eighty fifty. Right? Jesus rose in AD 33, and then he appeared to more than 500 eyewitnesses. And you better believe some of those are probably Pharisees. And so these guys who've lived their whole lives looking and trying to know everything they can about God missed the real God when Jesus just shows up right in front of their faces. And now they have to reckon with all of these laws they've been trying to follow their whole lives. And Jesus saying, yes, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, you go through me. And so they're trying to bridge this, but I mean, they can't deny what their eyes have seen. So they, these guys are showing up at the Jerusalem council. They're trying to follow Jesus, but they're also having this problem with, with, well, this was my old life and this is the way that I used to live. And these are my traditions and these are my rituals. And these are the things that church is. And if, if, if church isn't like this, church can't, church can't change that much. This should be the way church is. I think some of us do that too, right? Like we're like, well, this is the, this is the church I, this isn't the church I grew up in. This is the church I, way I remember. And when change happens, we can get a little bit like, oh no, 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 no. People have to do it this way. Why? Well, that worked for me. If it worked for me, it'll work for everyone else. We gotta be really careful with that, right? And I think sometimes, you know, at least in the case of the Pharisees and maybe for some of us, some of us have a little bit of like the, the older brother syndrome. And what I mean by that is like, the older brother in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, when the younger brother runs away, takes all the father's inheritance and, and spends it all and does all this like fun stuff. And then he does a bunch of sinful stuff and then he blows all the money and then he comes home. And the older son has been there just working this whole time, doing all the right things, honoring his dad. And the younger son comes home and the older son's got his arms crossed. Like, yeah, get him, dad. Tell him, tell him he's messed up, get him. And the father wraps his arms around the younger son, welcomes him, throws a big party for him, and the older son's completely indignant. Like, why would you do that? Well, what, he, he blew all this money. What, I didn't do this, right? Why, why, why am, 
wh wh why am I, uh, you know, ha having to get all the same things he is? He's even getting some better things than I am. And maybe some of us, we get a little bit jealous, right? When people start coming to the faith and, and, and it seems like they had such a, quote, easy road to God, and especially when we grew up in the church. Like, I know that some of us can get a little bit bitter about, like, the, some of the church culture we grew up in. We're like, wait a second. He gets all the same things as me. I never got to read Harry Potter growing up. I never went trick-or-treating either. And you know what else? I kissed dating goodbye. And I thought that Stephen Curtis Chapman was classic rock. <laughs> and he, he just gets to waltz in and he's treated just the same as me. Yes. <laughs> yes, he is. It's a celebration too. And the, church, the question for us, church, is do we celebrate when people come to Jesus? Is it, is it a celebratory thing for us? Are we really excited about it? Or is there a small part of us that goes, well, did they really though? Did they do X, Y, and Z? Did they actually find Jesus? Because part of us is like, well, you gotta do the things that I've done. You gotta do the rituals, the traditions, the practices that I've done. And so that's what the Pharisees start arguing about. And so there's a lot of debate about this. And in verse seven, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. And he, he's referring to a story from a few years prior when Peter went to Cornelius' house. You can find this story in Acts chapter 10. And uh, he goes to the house of a Gentile and Peter's a little bit like cautious about it. He's like, oh, is, is the good news really for the Gentiles? So, like, am I in the right spot? And he presents the simple gospel and Cornelius and his entire family get baptized. It's an incredible story. But what doesn't happen in the story is Peter doesn't walk into Cornelius' house and goes, hey, Cornelius, here's a simple gospel. Oh my goodness, yeah, you believe in Jesus and you believe he died and rose from the dead? That's all you've got. Oh, except for, wait, hold on. Cornelius, do I smell bacon? Bro, we can't eat bacon. And shellfish, Cornelius. Oh, sorry, you're out. Sorry, sorry. You were so close, Cornelius, but you had the plate of bacon, and that's, you know, that's a food that it's not kosher. We can't eat it. So, sorry, you're no longer welcomed in Jesus' kingdom, right? So Peter is saying, like, look, guys, Cornelius didn't have to follow all these laws. God made it really clear that the gospel is for everyone. The good news of Jesus, it's for everyone. And it's for everyone wherever you're at and whatever you've done, wherever you've been, and you just need Jesus. And then what I love what Peter says here, he says, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? He's saying, look, these 600 laws that you're trying to get all these Gentiles to follow, we couldn't do that. And we were raised in it. From the earliest days, we're memorizing verses of the Torah. We couldn't do it. You're expecting that these guys are going to do it? These guys who've lived their whole lives apart from God, and now all of a sudden, in order to just follow Jesus, they've got to follow 600 other laws? You're missing the point of the law. The law wasn't given to us so that we could get it right. And we were set up to fail. The law was given to us because it's impossible to get right. That's the point. It shows us that we're broken. It shows our need for Jesus. That's the point of the law. Look how broken we are. Look how we can't, can't get it right. No one can be perfect except for Jesus. He did everything for us. Don't put a heavy yoke. Don't make people work for something when you couldn't work for it. You couldn't do it. 
You couldn't, you couldn't function as the, the type of Christian that you're asking them to function as. I love how Jesus talks about yokes. This is the verse that Venetia read uh, before I came on stage here. It says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love the way that the message paraphrase puts this. And just to be clear, like uh, for anyone that doesn't know what the message is, uh, the message is a, is a paraphrased version of the Bible. So I would never recommend that you read the message as like your sole version of the Bible because there can be some like, kind of sticky verses there that may translate a little different. So, but I, I, sometimes I like to look at the message side by side uh, with, with the ESV or NASB version or translation of the Bible and just kind of see how this guy, Eugene Peterson, paraphrases. And I love the way he did this one. It's just so powerful. I love how he took Jesus's words here. He says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me and watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I love that. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. You want to follow Jesus? His yoke is easy. And the steps are, be with Jesus. Just, just get away with me. And I, I love how he references, you know, you're just burned out on religion. Have you experienced just a bunch of churchianity? Let me show you Christianity. It's just following me. That's what it is. It's taking the steps and following Jesus, trusting me, making me Lord of your life. That's the yoke. I, I'll, I did all the work. That's the reason why Jesus is able to give us such an, an easy yoke. And it's so light, it's because he did it. He already did all the work for us. The bottom line is that we're saved through faith alone, by Christ alone, and, and by grace alone, in Christ alone. Like that, that's it. We are saved by placing our faith in Christ and therefore he gives us this abundant grace. And that's it. That's the steps. There's nothing else there. Peter finishes this passage by saying, but we believed that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. We are saved by grace. We're not saved by circumcision. We are saved by grace. We're not saved by following the 600 laws of Moses. We're saved by grace, and you know what? So are they, because the work of the cross covers everything. That's it, period, full stop. Why are we trying to add to it? We're diminishing the work of the cross. You're tearing apart the work that Jesus already done. Do you guys understand that? When we add to, well, that's not enough, Jesus. Yeah, you did some, but we also gotta do X, Y, and Z. Jesus is like, my, the blood I shed for the sins of the world rose again, defeating death once and for all. That wasn't enough? Yes, it is. It's enough. It covers everything, all sins, past, present, future. That's it. And it gets us to God. We have to be really, really aware, Christians, if, if anyone puts uh, and in front of or behind Jesus. Well, Jesus and this. You know, a few, a few months ago, I, uh, <clears throat> I got sick with COVID 
and uh, it, it got me pretty good. <laughs> it, was, it, was not a fun, it was not a fun week in my life. But uh, the first day, uh, I was really bummed because I, I had some, some really cool things for work I was supposed to do, and I had some, you know, it was really exciting, and uh, it was right at the beginning of the summer, and I was like, oh, man. And uh, I, I, the positive test was like the most positive test you could ever get. It was like immediate, like, you know, I... I have the little, you know, a nose swabby thing. And it's like, oh yeah, there it is. Okay, positive instantly. And so I'm feeling really down and I'm feeling pretty sick. And, you know, I have a fever and, I'm <clears throat> and it's trash day the next day at our house. And we have a, we have a big uh, German shepherd dog. And so she's, uh, you know, goes to the bathroom in the yard. And so I got to clean it up. And so I'm out there and I'm just like, just in basketball shorts, like sweating, picking up some dog stuff. And I'm just feeling, you know, sorry for myself. And up walks two of our friendly neighborhood Mormon friends. And they're on their bikes and they got their awesome suits. And um, those Elder Mitchell and his friend, his name wasn't actually Mitchell, but just in case you know him, I'm going to say Elder Mitchell. And uh, they come up to me and they're like, hi, sir, uh, do you have a minute so we can talk about Jesus Christ with you? And I look at them and I'm just like... Like, oh, guys, this probably isn't, like, that good of a time. Like, I actually, I tested positive for COVID earlier. And, I, I mean, we're outside, but you may want to keep your distance. And I'm not feeling super good. And they go, oh, okay, well, can we come back tomorrow? And I go, well, I don't think you know how COVID works. But, <clears throat> but I'm probably not going to feel better tomorrow. So maybe we should talk now. And I'm just kind of bent over. And, and they, they go, well, um, well, let, let, let me tell you some stuff about the Book of Mormon. And I go, hold, hold on, before you go too far, um, I, I should stop you. I'm actually a pastor in, in Bellevue. And they're like, oh, you're a pastor? And I'm like, yeah, I'm a Christian. And, and most Mormons I've talked to, like if I say I'm a Christian, they go, oh, so are we. And I go, okay. And, and they have some pretty distinct differences from us. Um, and and there's, there's, they do not believe that Jesus is uh, the only God, like they believe he's a God. They believe there's a lot of gods. We can become gods. There's a lot of differences. And so, uh, so I, but I always like go, hey, I'm a Christian. And they go, okay. And, and then they keep trying to convert me to Mormonism. And so I'm, I always find that interesting. And so I, I'm sitting there and, and they're like, well, sir, have you ever read the Book of Mormon? And I go, well, actually, yeah. I mean, my master's degree is in apologetics and defending the Christian faith. So I've actually, you know, I've read the Book of Mormon and I've read the Pearl of Great Price and I've read of all of Joseph Smith's writings and I've actually written multiple papers on Mormonism. And Elder Mitchell's buddy starts backing away. Like, <laughs> and, Elder, and Elder Mitchell's like, oh, I'd like to hear more about that. And I'm like, oh, buddy. Uh, so I stand up and I go, okay, um, Elder Mitchell, well, here's, here's the problem with the Book of Mormon is there's so many historical anachronisms in there. And the anachronism is a fancy word that just means things that are out of time and place that shouldn't be there. Like, for example, in the Book of Mormon, it talks about horses, but the Book of Mormon is supposed to be written in ancient America. And Joseph Smith wrote it. And so he wrote horses because he knew about horses. But you know who didn't know about horses? Early Americans. <laughs> they didn't know about them until the 1500s and Columbus brought them over. It talks about wheels. They didn't have wheels. Chariots, no chariots in ancient America. That's just like a historical fact that those things didn't exist. And of course, there's lots of other issues. You know, you're trusting one guy's uh, finding a golden plate and then somehow they disappeared and it's only one author. Whereas like in the Bible, for example, right? It's 66 books, 40 different authors, thousands of years telling the same story over three continents. This is one author, his viewpoint. 
and there's so many contradictions in there. So I'm going into it, like these contradictions, and I'm just like on that like COVID energy, you know, that everyone talks about. And I'm, I'm going, and, and, and the other guy's like, oh no, like he's like, oh, this is the wrong house, wrong house, like abandoned mission, Mitchell. And Mitchell's like, and Mitchell interrupts me and he does what every Mormon I've ever talked to does when I start to poke intellectually at the stuff they believe. Well, I've just experienced Jesus and I know, I know the Mormon faith is true because of my personal experience, which a lot of us have personal experiences, right, with God. And so I said the same thing. Well, Mitchell, I've also have experienced Jesus, but not the Mormon one. So which one of us is right? You can't say you're, you can say you're right, right? But, but I've also, you can't discount my experience. And so he, he doesn't really know what to do here. And, and then I, I say, Mitchell, have you ever thought that you might be wrong? What do you do if you're wrong? What do you do if you have the wrong God? What? And, and he goes, well, have you, have you ever thought that you're wrong? And I'm like, oh yeah, that's why I got my master's in apologetics. <laughs> like actually, I walked away from my faith as a high schooler, Mitchell. Like I wrestled over the questions of why God allows evil, man. I, I, I've been there. I've walked all of these roads and I've studied it and I come back to the foundational truth of who Jesus is, that he died and rose again for us. And that's it. That's all we need. And he goes... Thank you, have a good day. And I've never seen him again, but, but praying for him. Um, you know, I, I, we need to be careful when people put the and in front of it. Because one of the last questions I asked Mitchell before he darted off was, hey Mitchell, I have a question for you. Yeah, 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 anything. Hey, um, so I've told you I'm a pastor, yeah. So I'm a Christian, yeah. So. Uh, you'd say I was, you say I'm a Christian, right? Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. Then Mitchell, why are you trying to convert me? Well, you have to be baptized in our church. Oh, there it is. <laughs> so it's Jesus and. The work of the cross covers everything. So then James stands up in verse 13. After they finish speaking, Peter gives this speech. Hey, the work of the cross covers everything. Back to our story, James stands up and he says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon is related. That's the word for Simon here. The Greek word is related. How God first visited the Gentiles, take them from a, a people for his name. As with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it's written. And James proceeds to quote Amos. Now the Pharisees are watching James stand up. And they're like, James, you're a holy roller guy. You know, like you're the guy who's always talking about righteousness and you're always gonna do the right thing. And you, you're talking about good works. And remember that James, you're, you're gonna write it later. It's like the faith without works is dead. And yeah. Yeah, so, so let's make sure they do all the laws. And the Pharisees are probably thinking James is their guy. And he gets up and he quotes Amos and he says, look, after this, I will return and rebuild the tent of David that has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And they're like, James, that's, that's not what we thought you would say. You're saying it's open for everyone. And James is like, absolutely. Well, then James, what's the whole thing about like faith without good works is dead? Well, yeah, because if you trust Jesus and you realize your sin and your depravity and, and you realize what he saved you from, you're going to do good works with him. You're not gonna try to do good works to get you somewhere. You know you can't get anywhere. But when Jesus is living and active and, and he's moving in your life, you're going to do good works. It's out of that. It's not saying do good works and then you can follow Jesus. It's saying you can follow Jesus 
and then you'll want to do good works. That's the difference. And then James says this in verse 19. It's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. It's a big way that I live. My, my uh, youth ministry philosophy is rooted in this verse. Uh, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who are turning to God. The NIV translation says, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Don't make it difficult for people who are trying to get to the gospel. We have a saying in 612 Youth that every day is somebody's first day. That's because we're always looking for someone new to come. We, we, we expect that someone new will come. And if we can be ready to think that there will be someone new in our midst every week, my hope for the students is that we will care about the new person and help them get to the gospel. There's so many people who walk into a church they've never been before. It's an intimidating place to walk into a church. If you haven't been for years or you've never been, then you come and you come in and no one talks to you and everyone seems kind of like they got their own thing going on. And you sit in the back and you listen to a pastor talk and maybe he just starts going into like, you know, all these details from 17 weeks ago that you're like, I'm lost and I don't understand this. And then you feel confused and then no one says hi, and, and then you walk out and you just leave because you had a bad experience. And so now we don't want to give students these bad experiences at our church the best we can. Now, that doesn't mean that I like sugarcoat what I say from stage, right? Like that's not what James is saying either. He, he, he's saying, don't make it difficult for those who are turning to Jesus. The words of Jesus are difficult words. My mentor in apologetics, Fred Coakley, used to say that uh, the gospel is incredibly offensive we don't need to add more offense to it, (laughs) right? The words of Jesus, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to God except through me, that is an offensive statement. Jesus said lots of offensive things of his day. He said offensive things that got him killed. He riled up the culture of the day by speaking truth to power. And so I'm not gonna shy away from the fact that we need to talk about sin and our depravity and our need for Jesus, but at the same time, We need to do our best to not get in the way of what Jesus is trying to do. Don't make it difficult for people as they're trying to come to Jesus. We don't need to to put churchianity in front of Christianity. When I see this verse, I'm reminded of John the Baptist. uh, In in, uh, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, it says, He came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this he said was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. I love that. Our job is to make the path straight. Now, it's not that Jesus needs us to make the path straight. It's not like he was wandering off on some crooked path and John's like, hey, Jesus, you need me? Let me put you back on the straight, straight path here. What he's saying here is that, yeah, Jesus doesn't need any of us, right? But he uses us, and in this case, he's using me to clear the obstacles out of the way that will keep people from getting to Jesus. What a cool job. What a cool thing that we get to do. Not because he needs us, but because he lets us do it, church. We can be a church that clears the way and lets people get to God. But then we need to be people that clear the way, and then we need to get out of the way. We need to let Jesus be Jesus. And let him do what he's going to do in the lives of people. So what our job is, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, is we're going to demolish arguments 
and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we're going to take captive. We're going to capture every, every false philosophy, everything that gets people away from the one true and living God. We're going to get rid of those and we're going to clear those obstacles out of the way so that people can find the one true God. And uh, then James says, let's not make it difficult for people to get to, to get to God. But then he follows it up with this head scratcher here. He says, instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Like, wait, James, you just said, you just said, like, don't make it difficult. Jesus is the only way, right? Remember Peter, he said Cornelius didn't have to do any of this stuff. Why are we now going to write to them and say, oh, but also do all of these things? Well, the sexual immorality part is for the benefit of the Gentiles. He says, it's going to keep you from following Jesus well. So this is a, this is a moral issue. And it, we're going to encourage you to, to give up some of the sexual immorality that is prevalent in your culture so that you can follow Jesus better. But the other things, it's a compromise issue for the unity of this fledgling early church. What he's saying here is, look, guys, you, yes, you have freedom in Christ, you have freedom in Jesus, but like when you're eating like that rare steak right in front of your Jewish brother who's been taught his whole life that he can't have this and that, that it's, it's, it's gonna throw off your fellowship. It's going to throw off your unity together. So maybe like when you're around these Jewish people, you can go easy on the rare steak and the, and the shellfish. Remember in this culture, eating together is just such a huge thing. It's part of, part of their church. It's part of what they do life together. So he's saying, look, we wanna make sure that for the sake of unity, that we're compromising a little bit because this issue has nothing to do with salvation. It has everything to do with loving your brother. And so sometimes clearing the way means giving up some of your freedom. It means, it means saying no to things that you are free to do and that you can't do and that maybe you enjoy doing but for the sake of presenting the gospel and pointing people to Jesus, I will abstain from this or I will restrict some of that freedom because I love you more than I love this. And there's, there's no way like for me to say that line or use that verse without the elephant in the room, like everyone thinking about like the last two years in the pandemic and we hear the word freedom and we talk about masks and vaccines and everything else and all these arguments that have been circulating around. And look, if I, if I asked everyone individually in this room, I'm gonna get 200 different opinions on vaccines and masks and everything else. And so I'm not trying to make a political statement. This is between you and the Lord and your convictions on all of this, right? And, and um, people have different arguments and good arguments for different things. And so there's no, no political statement being made. I can tell you my personal, my personal conviction on this. And I, I was never someone who was like terrified of getting COVID. I did not like it, but I, I was never terrified of it. But I still, to this day, I have a mask in my pocket at all times when I'm in public. And that's just because as a pastor, I tend to run into people who are still wearing masks and they're uncomfortable not wearing a mask. And so I'm trying to help them feel more comfortable in front of me. And that's just my personal conviction of saying, look, like, yeah, I'm free to not have it and I don't love it, <laughs> but I'm gonna do this for your sake. And you may feel differently than me and that's totally okay. 
Maybe there's some other issues in your life where, where you feel that, that, that uh, there's freedoms in your life that you may have to give up. You know, maybe you have an alcoholic family member. You're free to have a glass of wine in front of that alcoholic, but should you? Like, for the sake of unity, for the sake of their good, do you lay down your freedom for that? So maybe, maybe there's a different issue for you. But if you're upset that I, like, talked about COVID on, on stage or talked about masks, um, I, again, I, I do take very strongly worded emails, and I can reply to those. I love replying to angry emails. And you can email me at pastorkeith at cbcbellevue.com. Oh, he said that joke two weeks in a row. He's running out of material. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, I want to close with this story. I'm going to invite the band back up as we close together. Um, Church, I want to close with the story of a friend of mine. And uh, so this friend of mine was, uh, he was in the apologetics program with me at Talbot and Viola. And um, he's this amazing man. He's in his 50s now. And he found Jesus late in life. And I asked him, I said, hey, why are you part of this program? You know, why, why, why are you part of this? And he told me a story. And his story is just heartbreaking. Um, he had, uh, he, was, he was an agnostic or an atheist for a long time. Um, and when he's in his late 20s, his wife left him. Uh, and he had a drinking problem. And he was just as low as low could be. And he told me, he's like, I remember driving. And I, he was living in the state in the south. And he's driving. Uh, and he just looks really disheveled. Um, he has a you know, beard that he's been growing. He's super depressed. He's just, he's like, I'm just was gonna drive on a Sunday morning and I was gonna go pick up a fifth of vodka and I, I didn't know what I was gonna do after that, but that was my big plan for the day, I was gonna go get a fifth of vodka. And drive there and he saw a church on the side of the road and he was, he was like, oh, you know what, maybe I just need to be in a church. He didn't know a lot about Jesus. He's like, maybe I just need to be in a church. So he goes in, he's in flip-flops and just looks really scraggly and he sits down in the back. He's trying not to interrupt or, do anything and this guy comes over and he's wearing a suit and he says son he looks up son we wear suits in here and if you, what you're wearing right now this is an affront to a holy God and you can't be in here anymore and he escorted him off of the premises tragic that said Christian church on the front of it that was my friend's view of Christianity for years. And so instead he got involved in every cult possible. He said he was the king of the cults. He said he was like in five. And then over the next 20 years, cause he was jumping from place to place to try to find acceptance. He tried every Eastern religion. He tried mysticism. He tried new age stuff. He tried everything he was trying to find. And then eventually he does come to know Jesus. Why he's in the apologetics program is because I wanna try my best to make sure that no one else has to go through what I did because I'm clear all the obstacles, get everything out of the way and just get to Jesus. Man, and if that has been true of our church, I just wanna publicly repent of that. Gosh, if any of you have ever felt like this is not a place where you can meet Jesus and be loved and accepted and be home, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that, that, that has been your experience and we'll, we'll try to do better. We're not perfect, we're sinners just like you. We'll try to be better. And um, so as we close, um, I just wanna remind everyone here, Jesus doesn't need a bouncer. He doesn't need a bouncer standing outside a club, choosing who gets to go in. He doesn't need a gatekeeper. He needs a demolition crew. 
He needs people, he wants people that are gonna tear down the gates, false religions, false ideologies, rituals, practices, things that are different than the way of Jesus. Even good things that were traditions, we gotta clear those out to make room for Jesus and then let Jesus work in the hearts and minds of people around him. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for how good you are to us that even though we don't deserve or are qualified to be part of your move in this world, that you let us be a part. Thank you for your love and your grace that we don't have to go through hurdle after hurdle to get to you. There aren't steps or practices to get to you. It's the simple act of saying yes to you. It's the simple act of believing that God raised you from the dead and that you are Lord of our lives. So Jesus, if anyone has had a false impression of you through church wounds, church hurt, or community hurt, Jesus, I pray that they would find who you are, that you love them, that your yoke is easy, your burden is light. And if they're burned out on religion, they can find rest for their souls in you. Jesus, will we be a church that is a hospital for the broken? church where people can feel that they can come just as they are and that you love them just as they are and that we would love